We turn to John chapter 1 in your Bibles, John chapter 1. And Lynn and Todd have some Bibles on the side. If you don't have a Bible with you, just get their attention. They will get one to you so that you can follow along as we look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Where's, where's Larry? There he is. I'm seeing something different on here than what's on there. What's on there is good. I just don't see it on here, but I'll be good. I'll, I'll just assume that when I hit the button or when you hit the button, it'll be there. All right. We're in our series in the Gospel of John called Meet Your Maker. We invite you all to follow along. John chapter 1, it's page 587, page 587 in the Bibles that the fellows were distributing. Time Magazine conducted a poll of professing Christians last year, found out that a full 61% believe that God wants people to be prosperous. 31% believe if you give your money to God, then God will bless you with money. Of the four biggest megachurches in the country, three of those four, Joel Osteen's Lakewood in Houston, T.D. Jake's Potter's House in Dallas, Creflo Dollars, appropriately named, Creflo Dollars World Changers near Atlanta. They're all prosperity churches. You've got prosperity preachers all over the airwaves. Robert Tilton said, being poor is a sin. God promises prosperity. New house, new car, that's chicken feet. That's nothing compared to what God wants to do for you. Fred Price, if you've got $1 faith and you ask for a $10,000 item, it ain't going to work. It won't work. Jesus said, according to your faith, not according to God's will for you. Not in his own good time or if it's according to his will. He said, according to your faith, be it unto you. Gloria Copeland. Give ten dollars and receive a thousand. Give a thousand and receive a hundred thousand. Give one house and receive one hundred houses or a house worth one hundred times as much. Give one airplane and receive one hundred times the value of the airplane. In short, she said, it's a very good deal. Now, in a Rolex wearing, jet owning, money grubbing day of televangelists. It's especially refreshing to open the book and to read in verse 19 of John chapter 1. Now, this was John's testimony. It's refreshing because the John there is John the Baptist, not to be confused with the Apostle John, the author of the gospel in which this is contained. It's referring to John the Baptist. And Jesus said this about John the Baptist. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. He was a unique individual. He lived his life under a particular vow made by his parents at his birth. And in accordance with that vow, he lived an austere and even ascetic lifestyle. 
For instance, he didn't cut his hair. He never drank from what the King James calls the fruit of the vine, whether fermented or otherwise. He lived a pure and uncontaminated life. He was a man who had dedicated himself fully to the work of the Lord. And he trained for the ministry for many years, the Bible tells us, living in the desert. When the time came, John the Baptist burst on the scene and he broke 400 years of silence from God. It had been 400 years since God's people, Israel, had heard a word from God. And suddenly this rough and rugged man comes from the wilderness. He's wearing camel skin. He's eating a rough diet. There was nothing sophisticated about him. But when he preached, the multitudes listened and they streamed to follow him. Now, not all of the details of John the Baptist's life are presented in the Gospel of John. But if you read through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can piece together the details of his life. And I want to spend some time introducing you to this man, John the Baptist, as an introduction to the ministry of Jesus, which is, after all, exactly what John the Baptist came to do. Focus on Jesus. At one point, John the Baptist's ministry was sweeping the country. As a result of that, the religious leaders became concerned about this new guy who was attracting large numbers of people. And so they authorized an official delegation to interview him and find out who he was, what he was teaching, why he was doing so. So we pick it up in verse 19, in the middle of their interrogation. Verse 19, now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. And as you look at his response in verses 19 to 23, you're struck immediately by the fact that John the Baptist, unlike many particularly today, John the Baptist had no time for self-promotion. The fact is he could have run the risk of promoting himself. Thousands of people were streaming to listen to him. His popularity at this point was at its peak. He could have written a book. How to grow spiritually through the solitary life. Your best life in the desert. He could have talked about his miraculous birth. But notice what happens when they come and they ask him, who are you? And undoubtedly, one of the things they had asked are, are you the Christ? There was an expectation in the air of the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one would come. Notice verse 20. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I am not the Christ. The religious leaders asked them a second question. Well, are you Elijah? And this stemmed from a promise in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, last book in your Old Testament. Malachi chapter four and verse nine. And it's behind me, isn't it? Good. I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. The Bible does indeed teach that Elijah will one day prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. That's still future. That is Jesus' second coming. And John the Baptist did have a similar ministry to the one Elijah will have in the future. He, John the Baptist, prepared the way of the Lord at his first coming. So in verse 21, he, John the Baptist, responds to this question. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Then they asked him a third question. 
Well, are you the prophet? There had been many prophets in Israel. As you read through the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, you find many of them. Many of the books of your Old Testament are named for these prophets. But they were, when they asked this question, are you the prophet, they're referring to specifically one prophet foretold in Deuteronomy chapter 18 in your Bible. And Moses said there, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. And then God says in verse number 18 of Deuteronomy 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. This is a prophecy foretelling the coming of the promised one, the Messiah, the Christ. He's called the prophet. And the Jews of John the Baptist's day had erroneously concluded that the prophet of Deuteronomy was someone other than the Christ, the Messiah. John's answer to that question, are you the prophet, was simply no. Now notice the increasing curtness of his replies. He begins by saying, I'm not the Christ. They ask, are you Elijah? He says, I am not. Finally, he just says, no. It's as if he's saying, you know, I really don't have time for this. I don't have time for you, blind leaders of the blind. I'm here on a mission to proclaim a message. And then he explains that message. He shows them that he was commissioned to prepare men for the coming of someone else, not to focus on himself. In verse 23, after they've asked again, who are you? The Baptist replies with Isaiah chapter 40. I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. In ancient times, when a king was going to visit his subjects throughout the land, a crier would go before him and tell his subjects to prepare for his visit. They, the inhabitants of the city or the village he was going to visit, were to make the road smooth. They were to prepare themselves. Using that imagery, it was foretold that one would come who would be a voice crying in the wilderness, giving this message, prepare the way for the coming King of Kings, the Messiah, the Christ. And John is saying, I am that voice. What a self-deprecating answer that is. He simply says, I am just a voice. He gives no prominence to the preacher at all. Later on, he says, I must decrease, but he must increase. There were two preachers, famous preachers in London in the 19th century. Joseph Parker, you may not have heard about Charles Haddon Spurgeon, no doubt you have heard of. They were both Baptist preachers in London at the same time. Joseph Parker's fame was eclipsed only by that of Spurgeon. There's a large set of sermons available by Joseph Parker today that you could purchase. He was a gifted orator. The story is told of a group who visited London. One Sunday they went to visit Joseph Parker's church. And one of the visitors said, we came away saying, oh, what a wonderful preacher. The next week they visited Spurgeon's church. And they heard him unfold the truth about Jesus. The same visitor wrote in her diary, we left that service saying, oh, what a wonderful Christ. And that's what John the Baptist did. Pointed people away from himself 
and focus their attention upon Christ and Christ alone. He was one of the most powerful preachers who had ever lived. Notice verses 25 and 26, they ask. Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, or you're not Elijah, or you're not the prophet? He said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Sometimes we miss the significance of the fact that he is John the Baptist. Now, this is a Baptist church. And it's not, as I have heard people say, well, it's because he wasn't John the Methodist or John the Lutheran or something like that. The truth is, there was no Baptist church. In fact, there was no church at all at the time John pursued his ministry. So why is he called John the Baptist? We're so familiar with the concept of baptism, we don't stop to think that it's kind of unusual that John was baptizing at all. The church didn't even exist at this time, so there weren't people being baptized into the church as we do today from the book of Acts on. So what is this baptism? The Jews of John's and Jesus' day practiced baptism, but not Christian baptism. When Gentiles wanted to commit their lives to the true and living God, they had to become a Jew. So the Jews set up a process to symbolize the washing away of the impurities of sin. This picture was the washing away of the filth of the old life. So every Gentile who wanted to be a Jewish proselyte, is the term, had to be baptized. Then suddenly there burst on the scene a preacher with the gall to say, I'm excommunicating the entire nation. If you Jews want to come to God, you need to come to him the same way the Gentiles have been coming. You too must submit to baptism. Symbolizing the washing away of sin that's been put away because of true repentance. Now that's a mighty preacher. Excommunicate a whole nation not concerned about winning friends and influencing people. The word of God tells us that John was given a sign by which to recognize the Messiah. He knew Jesus Christ, but he didn't know him as the Christ. In verse 32, here's what it said. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water, God, told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. God told John the Baptist, when you're baptizing down at the Jordan River, the Messiah is going to come to you and you'll know him because the heavens will open and the Spirit of God, like a dove, will come down upon him. He's the one. Now, John the Baptist knew Jesus. They were cousins. But he didn't know Jesus was Messiah until that event occurred. When he recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, John the Baptist was immediately awed by the greatness of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 30. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now, John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. We learned earlier in this chapter, if you've been with us for the opening messages in this series, that before he became a man, Christ existed in eternity past as God. John recognized Christ's pre-existence and he was awed by his greatness. Then look at verse 27. Again, speaking of Christ, he says, he is the one who comes after me. 
the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. In those days, a rabbi or a teacher was itinerant. That means they would just travel from place to place and they would have an entourage of people who would go with them. If he devoted himself fully to teaching, there wasn't time for working, but neither was it ethical for him to accept pay. So in order to help make up for some of the difficulties of life, it was customary for the students to do little services for the rabbi. They would take their laundry, they'd provide a meal and so on. They had to draw the line somewhere. In one ancient writing, it says this. Every service which a slave performed for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher, except the loosing of his sandal thong. Removing someone's shoes and washing their feet was a task reserved for the most menial, the lowest slave. John the Baptist says, here is one who is so great. I'm not worthy to do what is done by the lowest slave. What a view he had of Jesus Christ. But note with me that John the Baptist was consumed with a passion, not just to know him and have this view himself, but to make him known. And so in verse 31 we read, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. His attitude was, he must increase and I must decrease. I'm reminded of the story of Tuscanini, who was conducting a performance of Beethoven's Ninth. He and the symphony orchestra did a marvelous job. At the conclusion of the performance, the audience went wild. As the applause began to subside, Tuscanini turned, he leaned forward, got the eyes of his orchestra, and in a loud whisper, he said, Gentlemen, I am nothing. And then he added, gentlemen, you are nothing. Beethoven is everything. That has to be the attitude that we have of Jesus Christ. The attitude expressed by John the Baptist. I am nothing. We are nothing. He is everything. You say, are you really going to get to that outline that's on the back of the program? Yes, and relatively quickly. I'm over half done. No kidding. I want you to understand today as we look at particularly verse 29. Why it was that Christ was everything to John the Baptist and should be to us as well. In that verse, we see distilled for us the message of John the Baptist. He was baptizing down at the Jordan River. He looked up and he saw the reeds part and stepping into the water was Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 29, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why was Jesus everything? Because he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you'll follow along with the outline that we have for you at the back of your program, we're going to see that Jesus is indeed the Lamb of God. And John was sent to prepare his way. And John didn't let himself get in the way of the work of Jesus Christ. He was consumed with a passion to make him known because of the significance of this verse. He is the Lamb. He is our sacrificial Lamb. Most of us are so familiar with verse 29, it's difficult for us to understand the impact that John the Baptist's words would have had upon his hearers. 
They'd never heard Messiah referred to as the Lamb of God before. But they were intimately familiar with the sacrificial system. When John referred to Jesus as a lamb, they immediately thought of sacrifice. It's very probable that along the banks of the Jordan River, within sight of this very event where John sees Jesus and he says these words, that there were flocks of lambs there reserved for temple sacrifices. Can you picture the scene? John looks at the lambs and he turns to see Jesus and he says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To understand the significance that Jesus was our sacrificial lamb, we need to know that God is the one who initiated animal sacrifice to deal with man's sin. It was a temporary solution to the sin problem. And so all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 in your Bible, you find that God's first act in response to the first sin was to slay an animal so that the nakedness of Adam and Eve could be covered. Throughout the Old Testament, we find that some have what some have called the scarlet thread, the trail of blood throughout the Bible. You'll remember in your Old Testament, the book of Exodus, as God's people were with a mighty hand brought out of the land of Egypt. As God gave that final plague upon Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, the plague of death, he said, I want you to place blood on the door. And when I see the blood of that animal, I will pass over your house. When God established Israel as a nation, he instructed them with regard to intricate sacrifices that had to be made. So as you read through your Old Testament, you find there were all kinds of offerings and sacrifices. There were guilt offerings. When individuals sinned against God, they were required to come to the tabernacle and offer animals in sacrifice to cover the sins that they had committed. The nation itself was required to make a sacrifice once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. When the blood of an animal was carried into the very presence of God and sprinkled there on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in the holiest place, an atonement was made for sin for one more year. Throughout the Old Testament, there were rivers of blood animal sacrifice. Archaeologists have done work under the remains of Herod's temple, the last of the temples that sat on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. They found that there were culverts six feet across under the temple. They were apparently designed to enable them to divert water to flow through to wash away the rivers of blood from the thousands upon thousands of animal sacrifices that took place there every year. You say that's grisly. But it is, friends, a testimony to God's grace. Because he could have left our ancestors in their sins and left them to receive what they deserve. But through sacrifice, he gave a way to postpone the effect of sin. Sacrifice was initiated by God to deal with man's sin. And notice, sacrifice that was initiated by God reminds us of a number of things that we need to be reminded of briefly today. It reminds us, does it not, that sin is costly. In the Old Testament, before the coming of Christ, What did God require of one when they sinned? He required them to go to the herd or to the flock and to pick out the very best beast that they owned. And then they would take it to the temple and would kill it and walk away from it. 
You had to do this at prescribed times and on any occasion when there was sin. Now, think about it. If if you or I had to take the best that we had and give it away as an offering every time we sinned, we would be broke, would we not? It was an object lesson in the fact that sin is costly. And it's costly not in, just in financial terms, but it's costly in our society. The moral decay of our societies littered the landscape with ruined lives. Our communities are filled with broken homes, weeping children, men and women who are slaves to sin. It is costly. And God reminded us of that in the sacrificial system. It also reminds us that sin brings death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The payment for sin is eternal death, separation from God from all, for all eternity. Every time a worshiper in the Old Testament selected the best lamb out of his herd, he led it to the tabernacle where the priest hoisted it on an altar. He laid his hands on it, symbolizing the transfer of his sin to this innocent lamb dying in his place. And then as he executed that lamb and watched the lifeblood come out, that worshiper would think, I deserve this because I have offended a holy God. Sacrifice was initiated by God to deal with man's sin. And it reminds us that sin is costly and that sin brings death. Jesus was and is our sacrificial lamb. I want you to note, secondly, Jesus is our exclusive lamb. John said in verse 29, look, the lamb of God. Not a lamb of God, the lamb of God. Friends, we live in an age that's characterized by relativism, the philosophy that says all views are equally valid. We've seen in our 11 o'clock hour how to find meaning in a meaningless world. Relativism simply will not hold up. As soon as you say, I believe absolute truth does not exist, and you believe that statement is absolutely true, you're in trouble. It's self-refuting, self-defeating. But many people still hold to it. All views are equally valid. And thus universalism, anybody who is sincere will make it to God. The Bible says of Jesus, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. He is the lamb. Notice thirdly. Jesus is the exclusive lamb. But Jesus is also the provided lamb as well. Look, the lamb of God. The lamb of God. He's the lamb whom God has given. Old Testament believers, I believe, were saved because of their faith in God and they gave evidence of their faith by obeying what God had said. But the law stated that when they made sacrifice because of their sin, they had to go to their herd, select their lamb, and they brought it to the temple and they sacrificed it. They did it all. Here we have a lamb provided by who? The lamb of God, a sacrifice that God has given. Now hear this, friends. Forgiveness of sin does not ultimately rely on anything that we do. God has done it all. And you and I are simply required to believe, to receive what Jesus Christ has done for us. 
John wrote this book, he tells us in chapter 20 and verse 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We must believe. And as we grow in our understanding of the word of God, we eventually come to understand that it was God who even allowed me to believe. God initiates salvation from beginning to end. Jesus is, fourthly, God's final lamb. John says in verse 29, look, the lamb of God, and notice this phrase, who takes away the sin of the world. He takes our sin away. It is gone. Old Testament sacrifices could not do that. On Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, they had to come year after bloody year. They offered what they called the daily sacrifices, morning and evening, day after bloody day. And in your New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, it tells us that the frequency of this sacrifice was because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So Old Testament worshipers were forgiven, as it were, on credit. They brought an animal and they made a sacrifice. It didn't take away sin. It postponed the inevitability when it would have to be paid for. But Jesus was the lamb who died once. He died once and he took away our sins. And that's why the same author of the book of Hebrews says, after he had provided atonement for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. You think about the work of that priest. That guy could never sit down. That guy was always busy, always having to offer sacrifice. And Jesus Christ, because of who he is, was able to, in one marvelous act, offer sacrifice one time for every sin, for every person, past, present, and future. And that's why the Bible teaches the fifth thing that I have in your outline. Christ is the all-sufficient Lamb. Verse 29, John says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes away the sin of the world, available for every person, man, woman, and child. Now, we're almost finished. But as you think about the supreme sacrifice of Jesus Christ, His final sacrifice, his all-sufficient sacrifice, the fact that it was a provided sacrifice, it came from God. You need to avoid, friend, making the mistake that so many people do. They say things that impugn the integrity of the sacrifice that Jesus gave. Now, here's what I mean. Some people believe, even to this day, that every week you approach an altar, and they call it an altar. In many of our churches, we have altar calls. You've heard me say before, if I have anything to say about it, we will never have an altar in our church. The only altar we will have is the symbol of the cross. The altar where the sacrifice was made once and for all. Thanks be to God. And you do not go week after week to cover the sins committed in the past, hoping that if you die, everything has been taken care of. 
Because this sacrifice is so all-sufficient that it covered every sin that you've ever committed or ever will commit. And so many people say, and inadvertently then, impugn the integrity of his sacrifice. They say, he couldn't forgive me for what I have done. Perhaps some of you have said that. You don't know what I've done. It's too bad God could not forgive that. Hear this, friend. Unlike us, God does not have a list of categories of sins that he can forgive. We have so-called big sins and little sins. God calls them sin. And Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the entire world. Do not insult his sacrifice. By saying he cannot forgive me. He has made provision for you. He has made provision for me. But it is only applied when you come to him. The Bible says that there's going to be a time when there are going to be multitudes of people who will worship this lamb of God who was offered for our sins. The Bible tells us in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. And John, who wrote it, this same John, who wrote the Gospel of John, says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the the lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Friends, it is my heart's desire that you will be part of that group. With me singing praise to the lamb. Doug McLaughlin was with us last week. He mentioned one of his favorite authors, mine as well, Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called How Shall We Then Live? I recommend it to you. The cover of the copy that I have has a painting on the front. It's called The Adoration of the Lamb. It looks like this. It's unbelievable that everything I hit actually showed up up there. Schaeffer commented on this, this painting by Jan van Eyck, The Adoration of the Lamb. You notice the lamb, if you can see it, the lamb is central. But the lamb is alive. The lamb had been slain, but the lamb is no longer dead. And he is central. And there are people coming to him from every walk of life, poor and rich, and they all come to him. Now, friends, I tell you that for this reason. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And no matter who you are, No matter what you've done, no matter what has been done to you, he is the lamb that you must receive, and he is the lamb that we were made to adore. I invite you then to receive him. And how do you do that? You recognize he died for your sin. You're a sinner. You repent of your sin. You say, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to follow what you say, not what I say. You receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to pray now. How do you receive him into your life? 
You pray from your heart to God right now in this sacred moment. And you say, Lord, I am a sinner. I have sinned against you. I ask you to forgive me. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. I receive him and I want to follow him with the rest of my life. Thank you for saving me. If you mean that, if you say that from your heart to God, he will save you right now on the basis of Jesus' all-sufficient sacrifice. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for this time where we could look into your word and be reminded of the ministry of your servant, the self-effacing, humble ministry of your servant, John. Thank you, Lord, for telling us in your word why he had such humility. Because he compared himself to the supreme one, the excellent one. The God of the universe come in the flesh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, none other than Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for this reminder. We thank you for the reality of this story that Jesus is the Lamb of God. That he has done what's necessary to take away all of my sin, every sin, every bit of it. To remove the guilt and thereby remove the barrier that existed between you and me because of my sin. Thank you, Lord, for moving upon my heart at a point in time where I heard that marvelous news that I do not have to continue to try to work my my way to heaven. Jesus has done the work for me, and he sits down at the right hand of the Father. So, Lord, I thank you for that marvelous message. I thank you for this reminder, and I thank you for saving people right now in this moment. I ask that your Holy Spirit move upon the hearts of people so that they will indeed receive the Lamb and live lives that adore the Lamb. We pray these things to your glory in Christ's name. Amen.